captain's logs. Han Solo. I'm Captain of the Millennium Falcon. This is Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the Federation Starship Enterprise. Listening to Captain's Logs and Lightsabers, part of the Geek News Now podcast network. Welcome to another episode of Captain's Logs and Lightsabers on both our dedicated feed and the Geek News Now podcast hub. We're pleased that you've once again joined us for another exciting discussion where Chris and I compare Star Trek and Star Wars. I want to take a moment at the top of the show to thank all of our new listeners we've gained from the debut episode of CLL Presents The Living Page. Uh, If you haven't gone back yet and listened to our back episodes of the show, we encourage you to do so, so that you have an idea of how the format of this show works. More episodes of The Living Page are forthcoming, and we hope to continue the growth that we've seen already from that show. If you enjoy our show, please consider leaving us a positive review on Apple Podcasts, as that truly is the best way to help get the word out about both shows on this feed and get us into more listeners' ears. Anyone who leaves us a review will get a shout-out, and their review will be read on air in future episodes. So without further ado, let me take a moment to introduce my co-host for this exploration of a single topic shared between Star Trek and Star Wars. Chris, what's been going on in your world the past few weeks? Oh, it's good to see you again there, Jonathan. I'm ready to do another uh, great show with you. My, basically, I've been pretty boring in the last since our last recording <laughs> at this point. Basically, cutting grass and working. That's about it. <laughs> you know. So I'm looking forward to talking Star Trek and Star Wars with you again. It's always a good time. Yes, it always is, and I'm looking forward to our discussion as well. Uh, So since we last recorded, uh, Disney Plus has debuted Star Wars The Bad Batch, and as of our recording, uh, there have been three total episodes so far, including that 70-minute premiere episode. Uh, What are your thoughts about the show so far, and have you seen all three episodes, Chris? Yes, I've seen all three. I watched episode three last night, uh, which I thought was really interesting. The, The first episode was incredible. I, I was just drawn into it right from the get-go. And it's, it's actually a lot of what I've been wanting to see is the the ending of the Republic and the beginning of the Empire. So they kind of just dove right into that, basically. Uh, the characters are very fascinating. At first, I was a little nervous about the Bad Batch. I watched them in Season 7 of The Clone Wars. And yeah, it was in four episodes, but I, I kind of got a little bored for some reason. So I'm, I plan on re-watching them just to give them a fresh eyes. But... Those characters are very, very interesting. What's really neat about the characters is they each have their own kind of mutation, kind of like the X-Men, something unique about all of them. Uh, Echo is, I think, is really interesting because he actually doesn't have the mutation. He just kind of got ripped apart and abused in those. And then after he got caught in the Clone Wars of the Citadel. So it's, he's a really neat anomaly. And I'm guessing the, the brain damage he got are from being captured by the separatists i guess led to the inhibitor chip not working with him so that's that's what's really nice is seeing them separate from the other clones and it's very interesting also to see what happened to the standard clones after order 66 and then the chip got activated they basically lost all free will they have there's like no control anymore so they're basically just mindless zombies working for the new empire right now 
So it, it'll be very interesting to see what happens with the clones. One thing that's happened in at least the first episode and definitely the third episode as well is obviously the Empire doesn't seem to have any major plans for the clone troopers. They don't want to keep moving forward with it. So what's going to end up happening with the clones as they start moving toward these individualized people who sign up and become stormtroopers? Mm-hmm. It, it's just going to be very, very interesting. Um, Omega's going to be a very interesting character as well. I can't wait to find out what her background is. Is she a clone of Jango Fett that somehow turned out female? Is she a clone of somebody else? There's so many unknowns with her. And one good thing I've noticed about her is a lot of people were afraid that they weren't going to like her because she was the kid character on the show. Mm-hmm. But there's something very compelling about her that kind of draws you to her. So. Seeing that grow is going to be very fascinating. Um, I think the storytelling is wonderful. The animation's wonderful. We're in a new area, area of Star Wars that hasn't been explored yet. So I'm very excited about it. So what are your thoughts about the Bad Batch? Well, I mean, I know we talked a lot about it on the, uh, the first episode of The Living Page, Sean and I did. But uh-huh. I just want to take a couple moments to acknowledge that I misspoke uh, when I said when I was talking to Sean, I had said that the droids uh, that Tarkin unleashed on the Bad Batch in the training ex- exercise looked like death troopers. I meant to say dark troopers from the Mandalorian. Uh, mm-hmm. and, I mis- and I misspoke on that. So uh, don't come at me. Uh, I realize my mistake. <laughs> Speaking of death troopers, on the most recent episode of the Bad Batch, the armor that Crosshair was wearing looks a heck of a lot like the death troopers that we saw in rogue one. Did you mm-hmm. catch that look? Yes, I did. Yeah. And even, even down to the green eye mm-hmm. visor. Yeah. So that's probably, mm-hmm. like, you're right. That's probably the very like prototypical of, of where that's going to go. Yes. And, and I hope it's not just a, uh, an example of the Mandela effect, but I swear in episode two of the bad batch, there was a point where Crosshair was speaking in some sort of code dialect that sounded mm-hmm. a lot like the Death Troopers uh, in Rogue One because they had that secret language where they communicated with each, with each other that wasn't Galactic Basic. So, And I swear I heard that in, in Episode 2. It's very likely that Crosshair is the first Death Trooper, and that's incredible. Mm-hmm. That would be very interesting to see what happens. I'm really curious to see if Crosshair actually ends up uh, beating that additional programming, that augmenting of his chip, and see if he actually ends up going back to his brothers or if he's going to be like a villain of the series, you know, right. all the way through. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm excited for the show. It's it's so much yes. better than anything I expected out of it. Me uh, too. And um, I know when we had first talked about the Bad Batch trailer. I had mentioned to you or I had asked you if you thought that Omega was female based on the voice and the appearance. And I can't believe I was right. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that's that's a crazy I'm not used to making these crazy predictions and them being accurate. Sure. So it kind of threw me yeah. uh, for for a shock, you know. So. Yeah, hey, that's cool. Always <laughs> a good feeling when you think of something. And that's what's one good thing about going into social media and podcasting is it makes your brain think about different things when you're watching the episodes. Mm-hmm. You're exploring new stuff now, you know. So 
Yeah, so we got a lot of good stuff coming from this show. I'm really excited. That's enough talk about the Bad Batch for now. Chris, why don't you let everyone know what our topic of discussion is going to be for the latter half of the show, and then maybe get us started on the news. Okay, sounds good to me. So basically for this episode, what we're going to do is talk about two strong female characters, one from each franchise. Obviously, we were thinking Princess Leia from Star Wars. I mean, she... I don't know if you can get any stronger than Princess Leia. She's just iconic and amazing. But I was thinking because since Leia was in the in the Rebel Alliance and then later on the Resistance against the First Order, why don't we tie her with another Resistance character from the Star Trek universe? So I figured, who better than Major Kira Norris from Star Trek Deep Space Nine? So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about five similarities b- between the two characters, how they kind of relate to each other. Thought it'd be kind of a fun little chat, so we're excited to get started on that. Move the ship out of the asteroid field so that we can send a clear transmission. Captain, incoming message. Come closer, I have good news. But before we get into the discussion for this episode, there was one Trek story that I kind of wanted to talk with you, Jonathan, about. So we all know that Star Trek Prodigy is the animated series that's going to be debuting on Paramount Plus sometime this year. So basically, we don't know much about the show. All we know is that it was supposed to have a group of kids, outlaws, that find some sort of derelict Starfleet ship and go out on adventures kind of trying to reintroduce themselves and become i guess better people rather than than what they had come from so and we also know that kate mulgrew is actually going to be reprising her role as Catherine janeway but of course they said it was going to be captain janeway and there was a lot of discussion about well how is it a captain janeway when she was an admiral when she in star trek nemesis so we ended up getting the information that it was going to be a Starfleet ship in the Delta Quadrant that had something called the Emergency Training Hologram. And that's how Captain Janeway would fit into this. So but that was really basically the all the news we had about it. Well, Kate Mulgrew kind of clarified where it's going to start in the pilot. So basically, there's these kids, these delinquents are going to be on some prison planet or whatever in the Delta Quadrant, some obscure area that's never been seen before. They manage to escape from the the detention center and they come across the ship, I guess, buried in the sand and they try to get it activated because they have the authorities on their tail. And one of them happens to accidentally activate the emergency training hologram and the training hologram, I guess, helps them launch the ship. So even though that's not a whole lot of news, at least it kind of gives us some sort of idea of how everything kind of fits together, everything kind of comes along and the adventure starts. So more and more as we get news for this show, I'm getting super excited for it. I love that we're going to have yet another animated series, and this time it's going to be, I guess, CGI rather than traditional cell animation. So um, with how Star Wars has done well with the Clone Wars and now the Bad Batch and with Rebels, I'm looking forward to seeing how this an anim- another animated series in this format is going to help broaden and strengthen the Star Trek universe. What about you, Jonathan? What are your thoughts about Prodigy and some of this little little bit of detail that we got? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're right on the money. I think animation, and especially when animation is taken seriously, you know, as as something for the younger audience as well as longtime fans of Star Trek, uh, it, it's exactly what 
has occurred with Star Wars and why Star Wars animation has been so in, incredibly successful. Uh, it, yes. it, it's exactly what they need to do. Um, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I had somehow I had seen the Kate Mulgrew was going to be Captain Janeway, and I know we had talked about that in a previous episode, but I didn't know how it fit into the timeline. So it's it's kind of cool that these uh, these juveniles uh they find the ship in the delta quadrant so we know right away that that takes place during either during or immediately after voyager uh you know during that timeline i think that's pretty cool so yeah i i think as far as the timeline of the series having that brief description uh of where the show seems to fit in the timeline and how we get to see captain janeway but not Captain Janeway because she's in a, a training hologram. Uh, I think that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, it, it, it certainly gives us an idea of where the show is going to fit in. So is, is the timeline either it, it's either during Voyager while they're tra- while they're trapped in the Delta Quadrant and trying to get home, or it's afterwards and Starfleet has started to ex- explore the Delta Quadrant, uh, right? And that's why the ship ends up you know crashed in the uh crashed on on a on the surface of a planet right so that's it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out uh i'm looking forward to hearing you know janeway's voice again and of course you know kate mulgrew's aged a little bit and Mm -hmm. i'm i'm interested to see how she is able to convey that she's still the younger captain janeway uh, yes in 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 the show um Mm -hmm. So that'll be interesting, but yeah, I, I, I'm I'm excited for it, and I think that it's going to be fantastic. I can't wait till the debut episode happens and we get to see it on Paramount Plus. I'll be watching that with great excitement. Yes, me too. Can't wait. Now we just need a date. That's it. Right. Just a date. Right. That's, you know? the, that's one of the only pieces of information that's missing so far. Mm-hmm. So, uh, well. Since we last recorded, Chris, uh, May the 4th has come and gone, and as expected, we got some pretty cool Star Wars announcements. Uh, first, the first announcement that we got was a little, it was actually after May the 4th, but it's kind of a big deal, I think, so I want to cover it first, and that's, that's the Star Wars Celebration date change. So, you know, fans know that Star Wars Celebration is the largest fan convention for the franchise, and they recently announced that the dates for the 2022 convention would be changing yet again, uh, and of course, you know, the 2020 con was postponed due to, the, due to the pandemic, but this time, the dates weren't moved back further into 2022 or you know, into 2023, they were actually moved up. So previously scheduled for August, the convention is now going to be held from May 26th to May 29th in Anaheim at the convention center there, which is right across the street from Disney's California Adventure Park at the Disneyland Resort. And and this is really pretty much, you know, this is mostly good news for fans as it's a sign that large gatherings indoors are coming back sooner than Lucasfilm and Reed Pop had initially expected because of the pandemic. And, uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm sad that unfortunately I won't be able to attend because I have a vacation planned for earlier that month in May of 2022. And I just, you know, won't have the vacation time accrued to go on both trips. Um, Chris, you've never been to a Star Wars celebration, but I know you've been to Star Trek Las Vegas. Is Star Wars celebration something you consider going to? 
I would absolutely love to go, but I'm sure I'd have to go by myself because my wife's not <laughs> into that one bit. I'd have to bribe her somehow to get her to go out there. But I, I mean, Star Wars Celebration seems like tons of fun. And one thing that I've really loved about it is, is they live stream it online. So there have been times where I think the, the last celebration was, what, two years ago? Two, yeah. Two years ago? Tw uh, yeah. 2019 in Chicago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I watched it on YouTube from my office at work. So I felt like I got to be a part of it, even though I wasn't there. Of course, it doesn't it, it's not the same as being there in person. I mean, you know what that's like to be in that kind of place in a room with energetic fans. And, and then you have the actors on stage and then you got music playing stuff. It's, you can't beat it. But I've always loved that about the celebration is that they've shared it with the larger population. You know, and it sounds like it would be a real blast to go to. So maybe someday I'll get to go. Um, I am hoping, though, that maybe I can go to Mission Chicago next year mm -hmm. uh, w with uh, Creation. That would be a lot of fun, too. You know, right. you? Are you are you hoping to ever get to like a Star Trek uh, mission? Oh, kind of like Star Wars Celebration? Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh -huh. I, I, I absolutely would love to be able to attend, uh, you know, Star Wars Celebration and Star Trek mission, whatever city they decide to have it in. Next. Sure. Uh, I know that is going on next year as well, correct? Yes. Yeah, but the first one is Mission Chicago, and that's in April. Uh, yes. Uh, you know what? No, I won't be able to go just because of vacation, you know. But eventually, yes, eventually there will be I will attend a Star Trek mission event as well as another Star Wars celebration. Now, do you feel that uh, we are ready for full-scale conventions like Celebration and Star Trek mission in the first half of next year coming out of this pandemic? I think so. I think a lot of people now, a large majority of people seem to be have gotten the vaccine. So I think that's going to help make people feel a little bit more at ease, more relaxed. Plus, I think people have just had it with being stuck at home and not being able to do some of their favorite things. You know, like think about us here in the Pittsburgh area, Steel City Con. How many, how long has it been since the last one? December of 2019, I think they canceled four different ones. Mm -hmm. And it looks like they're going to be finally having one here in June, which I'm really excited about. So I think people are just going to be so excited to just get out and interact with fans and geek out and see their favorite people. You know, it's great to have conventions on on over social media. At least we they, people have got to experience that, but it's not the same in any way, shape, or form. So I think people are going to be itching to get out, and these they're probably going to be packed with fans. Yeah, I think so as well. And I'm, you know, I, I think we're ready. I think enough people have gotten the vaccine that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that uh, we're getting to that point of the you know, the herd immunity that that uh, is necessary to kind of return to life perfectly normal. Um, sure. And, you know, if, you know, if you are one of the fans who is still uncomfortable about this, uh, you, you know, you've gotten your vaccine, but you're still uncomfortable. There's nothing, you know, stopping you from attending this convention, but still following safety protocols, you know, uh, as far as, you know, wearing a mask and social distancing whenever possible, you know, and the fans will understand, you know, I, I think that for the most part, Star Wars and Star Trek fans, uh, aside from the online discourse, I don't think they're the kind of people that t attend these conventions that are going to cause problems. Right. Yeah, I agree with you. If At all these conventions, everybody seems well-behaved and they're just so mesmerized by everything around them that they, you know, they don't get into a lot of conflict. So, right. Right. Yeah. 
So we've got some more Star Wars news. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, this has all come fast and furious after, you know, in pre and uh, post May 4th. So on April 29th, we got some exciting news about the latest ship in the Disney Cruise Line fleet, which is named the Disney Wish. Uh Disney Cruise Line had a webcast on April 29th announcing several of the new experiences coming to their first brand new cruise ship since 2012. Uh, Among the announcements uh, were a Frozen themed dining experience, a Marvel superhero dining themed show, as well as a classic Hollywood themed restaurant called 1923. But the coolest thing that came out of this for us as Star Wars fans uh, is the atrium bar will now be called the Star Wars Hyperspace Lounge. Uh, this is a never-before-seen experience on a cruise ship or on land or anything like that that will serve Star Wars-themed cocktails and mocktails for all ages. The overall theme of the lounge is very similar to that of a party yacht, uh, but in the Star Wars galaxy. And the... Uh, when they first kind of started workshopping this idea for the Disney wish solo, a star Wars story had just come out. So the Imagineering team was highly inspired by the look of Dryden Voss's luxury yacht in solo, which I think is fantastic. So there's going to be gold trim and luxurious and, and opulent stuff all around. I think it's really cool. Uh, you know, so there's going to be a gold trim bar, but behind that bar, there are going to be three large video screens Uh, arranged that create a viewport that will kind of cycle through the various planetary backgrounds. You'll be traveling through hyperspace throughout various, you know, while you're sitting in there, Uh, you'll emerge, you know, out of hyperspace and in front of a planet, you know, you'll see some very familiar planetary backgrounds from Star Wars, as well as ships from all three major eras of the film trilogies will be seen flying about the video screen. So we might catch a glimpse of the Razor Crest from the Mandalorian, TIE Fighters from both Empire Days and First Order TIE Fighters, Star Destroyers, X-Wings, and uh, they've even confirmed that we'll get to see the Halcyon, which uh, is the ship that you board when you stay at the new Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser Hotel experience at Walt Disney World. Uh, So (laughs) this is absolutely incredible. I can't wait to get on the Disney Wish. Uh, Chris, what do you you think about this one-of-a-kind experience coming to the Disney Wish? Oh, I think it's wonderful for fans. I mean, it's basically just completely immersing yourself into Star Wars universe. You know, they're starting to do that at the park. They're starting to do it now on the ships. You know, it's like to be able to fully immerse yourself in that world. I mean, that's what we as fans always dreamed of is going on, you know, under the sets and, and walking the corridors or, you know, piloting the Millennium Falcon, whatever it is. You know, so people get these really great immersible experiences. So it, it's 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 going to be unique for everybody and just, just to have your, it's almost like you're on your own little adventure in that universe. I think it's going to be amazing. Yeah. So I would love to get on that ship. Now, have you ever been on a cruise before Chris? Never. Okay. Never. So for me, that would be the first for a first cruise. That would just be like the the cherry on top for me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what's nice about the Disney Wish is it's taking over what the Disney Dream currently does, which is sailing out of Port Canaveral near Orlando, about an hour. Uh, it's about an hour east of Orlando. Uh, so it will handle three night and four night Bahamian cruises. So mm-hmm. for a first cruise experience, a three night or four night is the way to go. That way, you know, you know, if, if for some reason you don't like it 
you're not on the ship for seven or more days. So sure. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, and speaking of the Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser, on May the 4th, StarWars.com published an article that kind of sort of featured an interview with Anne Morrow Johnson, who is the lead Imagineer for the Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser experience. Uh, she shared a lot of cool details about this upcoming resort experience. Uh, so she said that the the adventure begins when you check into the Star Cruiser terminal at Walt Disney World. It sounds a lot like a cruise, so... Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you check into the Star Cruiser terminal... And then you'll enter your launch pod for your transport through hyperspace to the Halcyon. Uh, so once you board the Halcyon, you'll get the opportunity to wield a lightsaber, uh, learn how to operate the controls at the front of the ship. And, you know, naturally, being that this takes place in the Star Wars galaxy, things might end up going awry on your two-day journey and and your ship may get wrapped up in the overall uh conflict between the resistance and the first order so guests will get to make choices on how their experience plays out uh how you as the guest choose to play the characters you choose to interact with and where you choose to be at any given time will influence the way that your personal story branches out while you're at part of this experience so on board the star cruiser uh, there's going to be a whole host of characters joining in on the adventure uh you you'll see crew members of the ship uh you'll see familiar characters from the films maybe like ray chewbacca kylo ren you know it, you'll notice that i only mentioned sequel trilogy characters and that is by design because much like star wars galaxy's edge at walt disney world resort your journey on the Galactic Star Cruiser takes place in the time frame between Star Wars The Last Jedi and Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. So you're only going to see characters from that era. Uh, so guests who stay in this experience are uh, encouraged, naturally, of course, to show up in full cosplay. So if, you know, if you wanted to sport, uh, you know, if you wanted to be a Twi'lek and support full-length Leku, uh, wear a Jedi robe, or even, you know, go on full on immersiveness and be a Trandoshan bounty hunter like Bosk. It's allowed. Uh, so Chris, do you remember the story that we covered a couple episodes ago about that retractable lightsaber technology that was teased by Josh tomorrow? Oh yes, I do. We, we had a nice little lengthy talk about that, right? We were in awe of that. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, and you, you recall that, yeah, I was saying that this awesome new technology should be a, a, a debut, should make its debut experience and only be available to guests that stay on the Galactic Star Cruiser? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, so maybe it's just a little too early to call me Nostradamus, but <laughs> I was right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, That's awesome. They announced that this will this that the retractable lightsaber will be an experience reserved initially to guests at, that stay on the Galactic Star Cruiser, which is phenomenal. Uh, so what do you think about all of this? You know, does I know you were last time I had talked about this, that you didn't even know that the Galactic Star Cruiser was a thing. What do you think about this, you know, this new information? Does it just make you want to do it even more? Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. 
Um, that's one thing I've been wanting to do. I think I might have mentioned this before, but for my 20th wedding anniversary in 2023, I'm, I'm trying to get my wife to have us go back to Disney because that's where we went on our honeymoon. You know, so this is gives me more and more reason to want to go. Like, we just want to pack up right now and just like ship down there. It would just be so much fun. It's just, and then them adding the the lightsaber into this, that was perfect planning for them because if this is the only place that they're going to show that retractable lightsaber, then definitely that's going to bring in the crowds without a doubt. So that was, mm -hmm. that was smart marketing on their part. This is going to be very, very exciting. I wish they would do something like this for Star Trek, get them involved in some sort of theme parks like they did back in the late 90s in Las Vegas with Star Trek The Experience, or get them involved in some sort of cruise ship or something, something in, in, immersible for fans. I think this is just, this is just, this is perfect planning on Disney's part. And I think it's an exciting time for, to be a Star Wars fan with all this coming out. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. 100%. Uh, it's not, it's not going to be a very cheap experience. Um, <sighs> if the early, if the early pricing rumors are to be believed, but, it, it you're supposed to look at it like it's a cruise because you know your entire time on this you know galactic star cruiser experience it's meant to simulate a a three-day cruise where everything is included your hotel stay your experience in galaxy's edge and most likely your food is going to be uh, included as well because when you're not in galaxy's edge when you're not making your port day call you're on the ship, so you're not leaving to go eat at one of the restaurants at Disney World, or you're not getting back in your you're not getting in your car and driving to the new White Castle that opened up in Orlando to get some sliders. You know, you are you know, you're on this Star Cruiser from beginning to end, so they're going to have to make it all inclusive. Essentially, I think. Absolutely. And and rightly so. I think it, if you're going to pay a whole bunch of money to do this, have the full experience, you know, don't make it, don't tie it in with something you could do anywhere else, you know, make this truly a unique and immersible experience for everybody. I mean, it just, it just blows my mind what some of these guys are, these people are planning nowadays for all of this. It's very exciting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. So that's, Pretty much, I think that's all the news that we have to cover, Chris. Uh, do you want to kick us off with our feature discussion that you teased at the top of the episode? Don't get technical with me. Logic is the beginning of wisdom, Polaris, not the end. The Jedi uses the Force for knowledge and events. You got it. I'm all set to go. So... Again, what we want to talk about is obviously the point of our podcast is to kind of compare pieces from the Star Trek franchise and the Star Wars franchise. Well, for this episode, what we were thinking of doing was talking about our top resistance women from Star Trek and Star Wars. So I'm really excited about doing this topic because uh, Major slash Colonel Kira Norris has been my favorite character on Deep Space Nine since Deep Space Nine premiered in 93 when I was, I was in sixth grade and 12 years old. So I've always had a little crush on Kira. So being able to talk about her is going to be tons of fun. So she definitely has a lot of similarities to Star Wars Princess slash General Leia Organa. So what I was thinking is that the very first similarity is that they both came from strong mothers so if just to give a little background on 
Kira Norris's mother. Um, there was a six season episode of Deep Space Nine. I can't remember the full name. I think it was Wrongs Darker Than, or I can't remember, but it's something long. But anyway, it showed what ended up happening with Kira's mother. Kira had always thought that her mother had died in a, in a refugee camp during the Cardassian occupation of Bajor, but that's actually not what happened. Turns out that her mother, Kira Maru, was actually taken from her family in 2346 during the occupation to the Cardassian station Tarok Nor, which and obviously became Deep Space Nine and later on down the line. But she was taken to be a comfort woman. And so her father had told her that she had actually died when she didn't. So, but Kira Maru's sacrifice actually was very important because it led to her family receiving better food in their refugee camp. And her husband actually felt that she was making a great sacrifice for her family. And really thinking about it, she surely did. I mean, yes, she she went to be and lived kind of in a life of luxury as a concubine, basically, for the Cardassians. But that sacrifice allowed her to basically, even though she gave up her freedom and her family, she gave that up so that they could be well taken care of. And I can't imagine any other important sacrifice that a parent would make for their child. You know, and she on and the episode showed that she was never reunited with her family. And like I said, Kira Norris always thought that her mother had died. And at one point she actually she in that episode where this all took place in Kira used the orb of time to travel back in time to see what had actually happened with her mother, because Gal Dukat, I guess, was the one who took her mother in as the concubine, and she didn't believe it. So she found out that it actually turned out to be true, and she thought that her mother actually enjoyed it. So she actually set her up, and she was going to actually kill her. But when she saw her mother reacting to a message from her father, and actually with tears she actually realized that her mother was doing this for the greater good. And so she warned Ducat and her mother that there had been a bomb planet, which she had actually planted. So, you know, she, she finally realized the sacrifice that her mother had made. And so I think that kind of goes along with the, in the lines of Leia. She had, she came from strong blood as well. So Jonathan, what would you like to tell us about Padme? Before I get into that though, I just want to, briefly put in a little editorial note for fan for listeners of our show who may not be as versed in star trek as they are in star wars uh bajorans which is the race that uh kira norris is they go you know they go by their family name or their surname first now that we've kind of got that out of the way uh <laughs> just wanted to address that for anybody who wasn't aware uh padme amidala naberi was born in 46 BBY before the Battle of Yavin, and she was identified by her parents and government of Naboo as being suitable for a life in public service. So Padme was elected to be the queen of Naboo at the age of 14, which is where she adopted the name Amidala so that she could retain anonymity for herself and her family. Uh, after Amidala's reign as queen was over, she served the she served the two-term maximum allowed of queens on Naboo, even though the people fought to amend their laws so that she could get elected to a third term. Uh, she didn't uh, take them up on it and, and declined, uh, but decided that even though she wasn't going to serve as queen of Naboo, she would represent Naboo's 
interest in the greater galactic senate by becoming a senator uh, she became uh, very strongly outspoken against the separatist crisis during the Clone War uh, and, and advocated to find peaceful solutions, but was often involved in several battles between the separatist droid army and the Grand Clone Army of the Republic. Uh, much like Kira Norris, Leia lost her birth mother. However, Leia was barely minutes old at the time of her mother's death, but she was adopted by Bail Organa and Breha Organa of Alderaan, Brea was the queen, and Bail Organa, her husband, was uh, a, sen- a senator in the uh, in the Imperial Senate. So Leia's adopted parents were integral in her growth and development until she was a young adult. Uh, but from her mother, from her birth mother Padme, Leia inherited many of the diplomatic and leadership qualities that Padme, you know, exhibited during her time as queen and as senator, uh, and very few of the impulsive, over-emotional qualities that uh, her father Anakin and, and twin brother Luke had inherited. Luke is much more like his father, Leia much more like Padme, um, yes. which is a nice contrast between the two. All right, so another similarity between Kira Norris and Leia Organa is both were young when they joined their rebellions. So talking about Kira Norris, so she sought to join the Bajoran resistance at the age of 12. Uh, she joined the Shakar resistance cell, but being 12 and she never had been in any battles or anything, she nobody really took her seriously. So what she started doing was she started running errands, cleaning weapons, doing other small tasks for members of the resistance to try to ingratiate herself to the older resistance members. So. At one point, they, the Shakar resistance cell was planning an ambush of a Cardassian skimmer. And when she heard about this ambush, she volunteered for the mission. So the resistance waited for hours for this skimmer to arrive. When the skimmer finally arrived and the first Cardassian came out, Kira immediately opened fire and she kept shooting until the power cell was empty. I don't even think she watched. She just kept firing, firing, firing. After the the Cardassians were defeated at that skimmer, she actually smiled afterward and was then considered an official part of the resistance for her bravery. She actually remained an important part of the resistance until the Cardassians fled from Bajor in 2369. So she she worked very, very hard to earn her keep in, in becoming a member of the Shokar resistance cell. And I believe Leia had some similarities with this as well, as she joined the Rebel Alliance as a young age. So Jonathan, I'll have you take it from there. Yeah. So Leia discovered the rebellion at a young age. Uh, she discovered it initially at the age of 16. Uh, she didn't immediately join because, well, basically her her parents kind of forbid her from joining on to the to the rebellion leia helped save the lives of a bunch of refugees during a humanitarian mission that she was on and then she transported them back to alderaan but on the journey to alderaan they had passed by a space station that had been mysteriously attacked Uh, leia eventually put the pieces together and learned that her father and the pilots that he had hired were the ones responsible for the attack of this Imperial space station. Uh, Leia later learned that her father wasn't only, you know, involved in this mission, but he was actively leading a small rebel cell that was attempting to disrupt Imperial supply lines that branched out from this attacked space station. She had discovered some hyperspace lanes that were all leading out from the station. 
uh, Leia, like I said, was forbidden by her father and mother from becoming involved in the rebel cell that they were both leading for fear that she would be put in too much danger. You know, of course, a parent protecting their child is, is natural. Uh, they, they felt that she should continue her work as a junior legislator in the Imperial Senate and continue trying to make a difference from within rather than being an outward uh, resistor against the Empire. Uh, you know, people were drawn to Leia's leadership, however, and they ended up rallying behind her, uh, including her one of her childhood friends, Amalyn Holdo, of course, you know, fans of The Last Jedi will know that uh, Amalyn Holdo had uh, a very critical role in uh, in The Last Jedi, uh, sacrificing herself with the Holdo maneuver. Leia and Amalyn Holdo were childhood friends, so they would later serve together again decades later. Leia and the Rebel Alliance were ultimately successful, of course, in defeating the Empire, and they forced the surviving loyalists of the Empire to retreat into the unknown regions. But unfortunately, the the First Order, of course, rose out of the ashes of the Empire because they were secretly supported and funded by a faction within the New Republic government. Uh, So Leia eventually left her position in the New Republic Senate after it was revealed that she was the daughter of Darth Vader. Uh, that kind of created a rift and uh, a distrust of Leia. So she left the, the, uh, the New Republic Senate and formed the resistance with old friends, uh, Admiral Akbar, Amalyn Holdo, and then she met uh, Rose, Tico, and her sister, uh, Paige, as well as uh, recruited a group of New Republic pilots like Poe Dameron and his rapier squadron, uh, among, among many other uh, people to help fight against the First Order. Hmm. Well, I wasn't even aware of a lot of those details. Uh, that's really very fascinating. How I was always wondering why Leia was never in the Senate and she was in this separate resistance. So you just answered a question for me I've had for a while. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Most of that, you know, her her time in the New Republic Senate, uh, a lot of that is is addressed in the literature from mm-hmm. from uh, from Star Wars uh, since the the Disney takeover. So the aftermath trilogy and uh, Star Wars Bloodlines, uh, both of those are fantastic. Well, Bloodlines is a much better novel overall than the Aftermath trilogy, but the Aftermath trilogy tells a very important story. Uh, and if you can get past the first book, it, it gets much better in, in the second and third books of that trilogy. So basically, I just kind of summarized everything that happens there. Sure. All right. Well, moving past the rebellion stage, let's talk a little bit more about their services in their military. So basically, both Major Kira and Princess Leia, they both quickly rose through the ranks very, very fast. Um, At the end of the Cardassian occupation of Bajor in 2369, Kira joined the Bajoran Provisional Government. Uh, That was the government that was set up immediately after the Cardassians withdrew. It was kind of like hastily thrown together. She was given the rank of major, and she was made the Bajoran liaison officer to now what was Tarok Nor, is now Deep Space Nine, under the command of Starfleet Commander Benjamin Sisko. Although she was initially against the Federation presence so quickly after the occupation, 
She grew to understand the importance of the presence of the Federation after the Bajoran wormhole was discovered pretty much right as, right after the occupation. She knew that the Cardassians would want to come back and reclaim Bajor so they could stake a claim to the wormhole. She knew the importance of having Starfleet involved once the warm, wormhole was found because she knew that the Cardassians would try to reoccupy Bajor and stake a claim to the wormhole. So as her years as the first officer of Deep Space Nine continued, she grew to trust the Federation and became fiercely loyal to Commander Sisko and then eventually Captain Sisko. Kind of fast forwarding to toward the end of the series, around at the end of season six, around after the death of Jedzia Dax and Captain Sisko returned to Earth for a couple months at that point, Kira was given temporary command of Deep Space Nine for at least two months until Sisko returned to the station. During this time, she was promoted to colonel. Also during this time, uh, she, she and the Bajoran government allowed the Romulans to set up a field hospital on one of Bajor's moons, Derna. And what, what they ended up doing was they not only set up the hospital, but they set up weapons and didn't tell the Bajoran government that this was going to happen. So Kira actually got together, and this was gutsy, uh, she got together a, a group of Bajoran vessels, which don't even have warp drive. They were all just impulse ships and could easily be, be destroyed by one warbird, much less a fleet of them. So, but she stood her ground and she set up a blockade around Derna for the Romulans to overrun. And basically the Romulans were going to do it, but then Starfleet kind of intervened and joined and said that if they, the Romulans didn't remove the weapons, then they would. So at the time, the Romulans were the were an ally against the Dominion during the Dominion War. So the Romulans backed down and, and eliminated weapons. But it just shows the strength of Kira to, to show that she wasn't bluffing. Also, during near the end of the Dominion War, Kira was asked by actually Legate Damar, the, the leader of the Cardassian Union, who ended up creating a fledgling Cardassian resistance movement against the Dominion, who he felt basically had invaded the Dominion territory. They've done nothing for them, and they basically became a second-rate power, a third-rate power in the Alpha Quadrant. So because... Damar knew that Kira had a lot of training with guerrilla warfare from uh, being in the resistance. She was recruited, but it was felt that if she came as a Bajoran resistance member, it, the Cardassians would not respond very fondly to her. So it was decided that Kira would end up having a field commission into Starfleet with the rank of commander. And that's how she ended up joining the resistance movement of the Cardassians and training those soldiers. After the Dominion War ended and Captain Sisko disappeared into the wormhole, Colonel Kira was finally given permanent command of Deep Space Nine. Since that time, we don't know anything about what happened to Kira, and we really don't know anything that happened to Deep Space Nine. As, uh, it, it, as unlike in the Star Wars universe, the, the Star Trek literature universe does not count as canon. So yes, there were novels that took place after and talked about what happened to Kira and the remaining officers. In actual canon, we don't know what happened to her. So it's a big question mark. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that being said, so Jonathan, what ended up happening that got Leia really involved in the Rebel Alliance and then eventually into the Resistance? So I, I, ultimately, the, the first major mission that Leia was involved in as a member of the, uh, the Rebellion, ultimately, it was the safe 
passage of the Death Star plans that the ill-fated Rogue One crew had been able to secure from the planet of Scarif. The plans were transmitted to Admiral Radice's ship uh, above the uh, surface of Scarif, and then on Admiral Radice's ship, the plans were then handed off to the crew, uh, Captain Antilles, and the crew of the Tanta V4, which was Leia's consular ship. Well, it was Leia's ship that was un- under disguise of being a consular ship. So Leia made sure that she personally took hold of those plans. And she, you know, of course, you know, we know from uh, Star Wars A New Hope that the Tanta V4 was boarded by Darth Vader and uh, stormtroopers. But Leia was, of course, able to, you know, tra- uh transfer those plants to R2-D2 uh, and get them down to the surface of Tatooine to, in the hands of uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. But, you know, I guess it was ultimately the, dis- the, the destruction of Alderaan that, you know, of course, led to the death of both uh, Leia's parents and millions of residents on that planet. Leia then became a very prominent leader in the Rebel Alliance alongside Moth- Mon Mothma. Leia served, essentially, she served as second in command of the rebellion right behind Mon Mothma. She was in charge of the various military forces of the rebellion. She organized the attack plans that led to the destruction of the first Death Star. Uh, She was integral in uh, helping the Rebel Alliance escape from Hoth during the, uh, once they were discovered by the Imperials. Um, Leia, you know, in, in, you know, of course, all of this is, you know, covered in the the original trilogy, but in in you know in the stuff that wasn't on screen, Leia was involved in a lot of missions that, uh, you know, that helped the Rebel Alliance gain footing and uh, eventually destroy the Empire. So she was involved in uh, the attack on Simon One, the Battle of Rogus Va the defense of Sunspot Prison, and many others. You know, Leia was involved, uh, directly involved in a lot of these missions that helped the Rebellion gain footing against the Empire and eventually led to their ultimate retreat uh, and, uh, and rise of the New Republic. Very interesting. Very interesting facts about Leia. So again, like I said, I don't never knew a lot of all this background stuff. So it's very fascinating that what you've come up with to teach us here. Thank you. All right. So yet another way that both Kira Norris and Leia Organa have been similar. And I kind of already discussed this a little bit. I'm just going to go into a little more detail. But both serve their governments in new roles after their rebel or resistance roles ended. So like I said earlier, so once the Cardassian occupation of Bajor ended, Kira joined the new Bajoran militia, which was part of the newly created Bajoran provisional government. So there was a line of dialogue in the pilot episode, Emissary, where Gal Dukat said to Cisco that hit that office was his only two weeks ago so really two weeks before only two weeks in between the cardassians leaving bajor and the federation coming right in she was very unhappy with that decision she felt that the federation had no business being there and she actually said that to cisco first thing when they met um kira also did not want to be assigned to deep space nine she said that she often clashed with the opinions of the bajoran ministers within the new government and so she felt that she was kind of sent there basically to silence her and shut her up 
Um, and then not only did they send her to Deep Space Nine, but they also assigned her to be the Bajoran liaison officer to Deep Space Nine, basically as the first officer. This is the obviously the assignment she did not want, and she she didn't drag her feet during it, but she was definitely very vocal and very opinionated when she first got there. But she quickly grew to realize the importance of Starfleet's presence in the Bajoran sector and how that was going to help Bajor regrow. And she ended up forming very close ties and very close bonds with the Starfleet crew. She completely trusted Cisco, and she also even accepted him as emissary of the prophets in their religion, which she didn't mention right away. But eventually, I think it was around season three or season four, where she finally kind of gave into that and accepted that. But she also made friends with a lot of the Starfleet crew, like Jedzia Dax, and she became a surrogate for Chief O'Brien and his wife when they got injured on a mission and they needed a womb for their baby. Yeah, you know, she she totally changed her tune from what where it was at the beginning of the series, and she finally ended up. It's ironic, but at the end of the series, she actually got to be the the commanding officer of Deep Space Nine, and she did it without hesitation. She was, I think, she found her home and her family there, which is what she's never really had before, except for with the Shakar Resistance cell, you know. So, what had ended up happening with Leia after the Rebels uh, defeated the Empire? Leia. Basically, you know, after the retreat of what remained of the Empire, those who wanted to remain loyal and not uh, renounce their ties to the Empire and join the New Republic uh, after Palpatine's death, Leia served the New Republic as one of its senators. She served the Alderaan sector of the galaxy, which, you know, of course, Alderaan was destroyed, but the Alderaan sector was named because Leia had discovered thousands of citizens of her adopted home planet who were not on the planet when it was blown up she she was able to help and um you know save basically save the heritage of alderaan during the days of the rebellion so leia was a prominent leader in the new republic senate uh but you know as with many governments in our own world, a, a rift began to show itself in the latter years before the First Order had uh, targeted and destroyed the Hosnian system, which is where, at the time, that the seat of the New Republic Senate was located. Uh, the New Republic Senate had moved its primary headquarters throughout the galaxy so that in the event that of, you know, a, a new galactic terror rising up against them that they they try to keep its location moving and and uh and mobile but unfortunately because the first order was funded by a faction in the uh the new republic senate the first order knew where the seat of the government was at the time and they were able to destroy it uh leia during her time in the new republic senate she was part of an unofficial faction uh called the populists this group in the government uh, in the senate believed that the new republic member worlds should maintain their sovereignty and while the imposing faction of the centrists believed that the new republic should have a stronger core galactic government and an increased military presence. Uh, Leia felt that the centrists wanted to create something that was all too similar to the empire that she had worked so hard to overthrow uh, 23 years prior. 
the centrists had proposed the idea of creating a position in the new Republic Senate called the first senator, basically a position almost like a prime minister or speaker of the house or Senate majority leader, you know, in our, in our own United States uh, governmental structure that would essentially hold considerable power over the economy and the military. Uh, I guess, maybe more like a president rather than um, somebody who represents the Senate. Uh, But the motion passed in the Senate voting body, and despite Leia and many of her populist allies objecting and voting against it, the populists kind of, they rallied to essentially keep power away from the centrist-aligned senators. Leia was nominated for the position of first senator, but because... She left the Galactic Senator after the, it was discovered that and leaked to the entire Galactic Senate that she was the biological daughter of Darth Vader and created that rift and that mistrust of Leia. She left the Galactic Senate and did not take on the role of first senator. That's kind of a, a very crazy, you know, I I don't know. I kind of like when Star Wars gets political mm-hmm. uh it, it, star wars has always been political regardless of what you think yes it's escapism yes it's space fantasy but there's always been ties to real world real world politics and uh, a lot of that wasn't explored in the new films but all of the expanded literature in the comics have really explored you know the uh the politics of the new republic mm. Very fascinating. Very fascinating. Once we get off of this feed, I want you to tell me what these books are, because I really want to read them now. You got me really curious about how all this went down. All right. And so the final uh, similarity between Kira Norris and Leia Organa is that both have a strong loyalty to their friends. So basically, when Kira became the Bajoran liaison officer Deep Space Nine. One of the first things that happened is uh, one of uh, there was a terrorist from a Bajoran cell called the Cone, I guess the Cone Ma. I don't know if that was a title or if that was the, the name of the group, but his name was Tana Los. And he came to the station and sought to receive amnesty after being chased by the Cardassians for war crimes. So she pushed and pushed and pushed for that, but then she learned that Tana Lowe's plan to collapse the entrance to the Bajoran wormhole. So she intervened, even though they were close friends, and stopped his plan. So she basically, even, even though she didn't know the Starfleet people very well, she, she sided with them and them being there rather than just with somebody that she had known in the past. Yes, he called her a traitor, but she stuck to her guns in that regard. Another individual that she was very protective of was Odo. Uh, so even though, and this was always very interesting because even though when they first met, he was working for the Cardassians, she always saw that he was fair and that he was decent and cared about other people. So she often defended Odo to Cisco and the Federation as, as his methods of handling station security were often not favorably looked upon by Starfleet. And there was one point in the third season premiere, The Search Part One, where they actually brought in a Federation officer to kind of work alongside Odo to represent their beliefs of what should happen um, and how, and making sure the Starfleet protocols were being followed in security. Um, He ended up turning out to be a a Maquis traitor. And uh, so Odo ended up looking very good from that point on. Um, But she was also, and she ended up falling in love with Odo. They ended up having a relationship until the end of the series. Um, 
Kira also joined her former comrades in the Shakar resistance cell, and Kira ended up joining them and fighting against her own government regarding the use of these reclamators. And eventually that ended up leading to Shakar becoming first minister of all Bajor in the government. She also, like I said earlier, she became the surrogate mother to the son of Miles and Keiko O'Brien. At the end of season four, there was an episode called Body Parts. And I think it was the B story of that episode where Keiko and Dr. Bashir and Kira were on a mission in the Gamma Quadrant on a runabout, and they ended up flying too close to an asteroid or something. Well, anyway, the, the runabout got severely damaged, and Keiko was seriously injured, and was at the, there was a strong chance that she was going to lose the baby. So obviously, they couldn't get Dr. Bashir pregnant with uh, with as he had no womb. So Kira, even though she was, wasn't human, she was Bajoran, she was the only real choice. And so she ended up being the surrogate mother for their son, Kiriyoshi. Um, she ended up delivering him halfway through season five. Um, she actually, before she gave birth, she actually was basically part of the O'Brien family. They allowed her to move into their quarters with them so that they could share in the experience of the pregnancy while Kira was still pregnant. Um, and so she, she also developed a very close relationship with the half Bajoran, half Cardassian daughter of Gul Dukat. As we all, as Star Trek fans all know, and Deep Space Nine fans, Gul Dukat was the prefect of Bajor during the occupation. So basically, he was the leader. And uh, so she completely, she had a, a complete loathing for him and would never forgive him for the atrocities he committed against the Bajoran people. But she never took that out on, on Tora Zial, the, the, the daughter that. Uh, Dukat had had with a some with a Bajoran. I guess it was another comfort woman. At some point, she formed such a close relationship with Zeald and that she actually considered her to be a part of her family. And she was beyond devastated when Damar killed her. When the Federation ended up taking control of Deep Space Nine and the wormhole again in season six. So it, it was actually this fact that almost caused her to not help Damar with his new Cardassian resistance cell against the Dominion. She had to be talked into it basically by Cisco um, and talk about the importance of the mission because she loved Dial so much and did not want to disrespect her. So that should, there was there's just nice little examples of how her the fierce loyalty and devotion she had to her family and friends. And I know Leia was very much like that with her friends and family as well. So, Jonathan, why don't you pick it up from there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Leia's loyalty her, to her friends is likely the reason why the Rebellion and then later the Resistance were so successful. Leia was charismatic. She naturally drew people to her leadership almost from the moment they met her. Yeah, she became fiercely attached to her to all of her friends, but most Specifically, she became very attached to Luke Skywalker uh, from the time that they first met on board the Death Star. Although, of course, she didn't initially know the true reason why that they were twins, uh, you know, which, you know, of course, she didn't discover until uh, you know, the very end of Return of the Jedi. Uh, you know, the friendships that Leia had made and, and strengthened in her young life uh, with Mon Mothma and Holdo uh, were integral to the rebellion and later the resistance succeeding. You know, she made friends with, uh, you know, with Admiral Akbar during their time in the rebellion and recruited him to help with the resistance. She 
had you know of course she was in a romantic uh relationship and eventually married han solo and they had their son ben who later became kylo ren once he learned of his lineage and and knowing that he was the grandson of darth vader uh, he became obsessed with carrying on that legacy uh, while he was also being manipulated by uh shockingly the 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 uh, still surviving emperor palpatine under the guise of supreme leader snoke um, and that was, uh, that was Palpatine, of course, pulling those strings all along quite literally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, Ben of course dropped his solo lineage and assumed the name of Kylo Ren. Uh, but it ultimately, you know, that led to Luke, uh, you know, Luke's failure to train Ben in the ways of the force, uh, because, you know, Ben was under the manipulation of Snoke and Palpatine and, uh, attacked, Luke and the Jedi Academy that he had started uh, and took many of the survivors and, and uh, you know, they became his Knights of Ren. Um, but, you know, Leia's, Leia's attachment and Leia's relationship with Luke was the reason why she never stopped looking for him after his failure. Leia did everything that she could to locate him. She felt that if she would be, if she felt that if she could find Luke, she would be able to convince him to assist the resistance in taking down the first order. You know, Leia through her many contacts eventually reached out to Lor Santeca of the Santeca clan. Uh, Lor Santeca and his, his ancestors had been involved in creating and mapping out hyperspace routes throughout the galaxy. The, you know, the entire Santeca clan had been involved in, in mapping these hyperspace routes for many, many years prior to the rebellion and later the resistance, they were actually highly active during the days of the High Republic, uh, and they were, you know, they were able to create the major hyperspace routes throughout the galaxy, as well as they had mapped secret hyperspace routes uh, that nobody knew about except for them. Well, other people knew about them, but that would kind of spoil part of the high republic uh story that's going on right now so i'm not going to get into that but because of these secret hyperspace routes laura santeca had a map and was able to provide a map to luke skywalker's location on octo so that's essentially the finding of the map is what kicks off the sequel trilogy in the force awakens and uh, you know we know that ray uh, took the map and and was able to eventually find Luke and and uh, you know all of, everything that happened in the sequel trilogy led to the destruction of the first order. Very fascinating, very fascinating. So it's amazing how even though these two franchises are so different, they've developed amazing, strong women characters, women for children to, and young girls to look up to. You know, their with their bravery and their intelligence and and their loyalty to their friends. It's just, I think this was a really fascinating discussion of the two comparisons. So thank you for doing your research on the Star Wars piece and and adding it into the Star Trek piece. And I hope everybody that you all enjoyed listening to our discussions of how strong these two women really were for the, both of their franchises. Well, like Chris said, uh, we we appreciate you coming along for this exploration of two of the strong females in both Star Trek and Star Wars in Leia and Kira Nerys. Uh, All of this talk about 
the Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser and being set in the uh, sequel trilogy era between The Last Jedi and The Rise of Skywalker has kind of reignited a a desire for me to rewatch The Last Jedi again. So because The Last Jedi is a controversial film uh, among some people in the fan base, uh, social media, and so on, Star Trek has its very own version of a highly contested film in Star Trek Into Darkness. I think it's probably time that we sit down, watch those two and compare them against each other and maybe go into a little bit of the fan reaction and backlash against both films. What do you think, Chris? I think that's a great idea because you got for both both movies, you got fans that love it and sing their praises and the other ones who thought that they were, it was basically the death of the franchise. So, yeah. So bringing those similarities in is going to be a very interesting discussion, without a doubt. Yep. That's what we're going to talk about on our very next episode. So we hope you will join us for that. But in the meantime, until our next episode, may the force be with you. And may you live long and prosper. Goodbye, everybody. The theme music for our show was composed for us by Chip Kramer. You can find him by searching Chip Kramer on SoundCloud. Uh, There also will be a link to his SoundCloud profile in the show notes for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to the show on Twitter, you can find us at Logs and Lightsabers Pod, all spelled out. If you go on Facebook, search for Logs and Lightsabers Pod. Or if you want to email the show, you can reach us at LogsLightsabersPod at gmail.com. If you'd like to reach out to me personally, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook by searching at Just a Disney Geek. How about you, Chris? You can find me on Twitter. Just go to Twitter, type in at Chris Stow, S-T-O-U-G-H-1. You can also find me on Twitter and YouTube. I have a YouTube channel called Pittsburgh's Trek Chat. On Twitter, you can go to at PGH Trek Chat. You'll find me there. On YouTube, just type in Pittsburgh's Trek Chat. That'll take you directly to my channel. My email that you can use also to get in touch with me is Christopher Stow, S-T-O-U-G-H-L-S-W at gmail.com. We'd appreciate any and all feedback that you're willing to provide. Just reach out to us on any of those social network contact points and tell us what you think, whether that's suggestions for new episodes what you liked about an episode, or what we can improve upon. We want to hear it. If you're an Apple Podcast user, our show would appreciate a five-star rating and review. It really is the best way to help our show reach more listeners and make us more visible to others. If you're not an Apple Podcast user, you can also help the show by subscribing to the feed. 